the lie the poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where would we be where would we be welcome to the state of the theory podcast i'm hannah and i'm an india and we are your theory doctors Hello! Hi there! Welcome, Welcome back! Welcome back! Um, how have you been? Pretty good. We're recording, what's the date today? The 7th of June. Yes. We're recording a few episodes today, yes. so that's a date stamp. Yes. We'll give date stamps for all the episodes we've recorded today. Yeah. Um, what are we talking about today? Today we're beginning a two-parter. Yes. A two-parter, it is sports season. Yes. Uh, I am not a sports fan, yes. but I find sports really fascinating. Yes. Um, so I have an interest as a sort of outsider, Yeah. but I find them really interesting. Yes. Uh, today we're going to talk about uh, gender, labor, and consumption. Yes. Next week we're going to talk about race, labor, and consumption. Yes. Um, class will make an appearance yeah. throughout. And to be honest, gender and race will also make an appearance throughout as well. Yeah. Um, it's it's more sort of specific uh, examples uh, in, in each episode, uh, specific news stories, and what it says about the way we see sport as labor. Yeah. Running, running the way we as society... Uh, see or don't see sport as labor yeah labor versus yeah. commodity yeah yeah um i say versus there are two sides of the same coin yeah, yeah. Uh, if you are a marxist yes <laughs> for some of us are some of us are <laughs> <laughs> um so th- this is inspired by kind of recent events uh that are reported in the media obviously of course as, as being distinct and different events but we are doing what we do, yeah. drawing them together. Yeah. Um, today we're going to talk about Castro Semenya um, and the, her, her kind of ongoing uh, pseudo-legal troubles yes. um, and the, the kind of barriers that she faces consistently yeah. and, and discourse around that. But we'll also link her to other cases, uh, Serena Williams in particular, and also Dutichand, Indian uh, yeah. athlete. Um, and then next week we're going to talk about football and uh, specifically Muslim football players, but also uh, black British yes. football players. And, and we mean soccer as opposed to American football. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll yeah, talk yeah. about American football as well, I'm sure. Oh, we could. We could. <laughs> <laughs> um, should we introduce Kastasamania to any of our listeners who might not have been following the story? Yeah, a lot of our listeners do, so yeah. shout out to to the listeners that post stories that are yes. obviously very helpful for us. Yes. Uh, yes. De- kind of developing our ideas. Yes. So Tell me more. Who is she? She is a South African athlete uh, who for some years now has been uh, fighting, as you say, a, a battle in courts and outside uh, in order to, to have the right to compete as an athlete. Um, the the reason why she's having to compete is 
she is being diagnosed, if if you like, within scare quotes, as uh, not a woman, and therefore the the implication is that she shouldn't be allowed to compete with women. Yes. Uh, because uh, her physical body, her hormonal identity, her the the chemicals that are, exist in her body are deemed to be at levels that are not quote unquote normal for women. Yeah, it's all really weird. It's, yeah. it's all pseudo. It's yeah. pseudo legal in the sense that the 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 governing bodies mm. that are making decisions about her are athletics bodies, international yeah. governing bodies around athletics. So they're not courts as such. Yeah. And it's also pseudoscientific yeah. in the sense that a lot of the, the kind of data and evidence that's presented is pseudo-medical or pseudoscientific and a lot of scientists and sociologists yeah. Experts in various fields have come out and kind of said, you know, a lot of this doesn't really have a basis in the scientific method or kind of contemporary scientific thinking on biology, on physiology, on sex hormones, or on the other side, on gender. Um, And so there's a lot of expertise that has gone into critiquing this. So we're not pitching this as a kind of science versus gender type thing I think yeah. you know a lot of experts who know about these these issues from yeah. various perspectives have, have critiqued what's happened to Castro yeah. Semenya yeah so I guess part of our, uh, our the where we are positioning our episode is uh, what the Castro Semenya story tells us about societal conceptions of sex and gender uh, and also what uh what it tells us about societal conceptions of skill and labor right so if we do the the sex and gender bit first um the the obvious theory to go to here is is judith butler mm-hmm. and gender trouble uh butler famously argues uh that gender is is performative rather than biological in other words we we aren't born into physical physiologically born into a particular gender but that we act our gender out through repeated uh, performances Uh, and partly why the performativity of gender is hidden within society is that society needs to violently impose uh, categorizations of sort of binary categorizations of gender where male bodies are have to be immediately and unproblematically unquestionably identified as male female bodies are supposed to be completely un- unquestioningly unproblematically identified as female and any crossover between the two is considered destabilizing for society as a whole right that's a, yeah is, is that a fair sort of summation of butler's yeah Butler's performativity idea yeah and it has been kind of complicated and and expanded and and developed in the last few decades um she also talks about so that's gender trouble she also has a really interesting uh uh kind of set of work there's an article in in a theater journal yeah the the kind of original article on performance um in a sort of theatrical way taking the kind of the arts and humanities concept of 
of society as a stage yeah. on which yeah. we perform versions of ourselves yeah. and we perform versions of ourselves in different spaces in different ways and so if you're on public transportation performing a gender identity or if you're on a, a stage in san francisco in a drag show you're performing yeah. gender in a, in a different way than you yeah. would necessarily on yeah. the subway or yes. you know and so the the way that we perform takes on different flavors and different characters as we move in different social spaces um and of course on a sports field yeah the performance of gender is very specific and it sports themselves create a set of rules and conditions whereby you perform not just the sport but also gender at the same time um a really good example i think is is tennis where uh women's tennis of course has been critiqued by many people for for sexualizing women's bodies in very particular ways um wimbledon requires their athletes to wear white um Serena Williams' clothing has been uh, uh, outlawed in various tournaments because the the clothing that she wears is deemed to be inappropriate or counter to the sport, whatever it is. Um, so gender performances are modulated based on the kind of space itself. Um, Castor Semenya is a really interesting uh, and quite horrifying for us. I think we should we should begin yeah. by saying that we find a lot of the discourse around her to be both old-fashioned, outmoded, problematic, and violent. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's denying her her personhood. Yeah. Apart from, apart from, uh, among much else, it's denying her uh, her right to earn a living, it's denying her her personhood, it's uh, accusing her of cheating. I mean, on, on, on all levels, it's, it's, a, it's a concerted attempt to reject her reject her yeah. as, a, as, a, as a human being yeah basically and it does so by actively objectifying her yes so it it turns her personhood into an object yes to be manipulated and measured and um categorized in various ways and then modified yeah uh, and specifically we're talking about testosterone yes um She's, I mean, it, to talk about it just sounds really kind of 1930s yeah. eugenic. I mean, it's yeah. it's creepy and gross. Yeah. Um, but the idea, right, for those of you who don't know, she has, apparently, she has been deemed to have too much testosterone. Yes. Her body produces too much testosterone, which gives her an advantage. Yes. Um, and that advantage is unfair to other women, the women that she competes against. So yes. she's too much of a man... Right, that she's being deemed to be too much of a man physically. Yeah. Um, and that she's at once biologically, biologically too male. Yeah. But then by winning on the field, she's being gendered as being too manly. Yeah. This is a sort of yeah. hyper-masculine performance yeah. by, by winning and yeah. competing yeah. so effectively. Yeah. Doing her job well. Yeah. But she's still not man enough. Yeah. To race against men. Yes. And then, so so she sits in this place where she's too good to be a woman, but not good enough to be a man. And it's all very troubling. Yeah. 
good pun on butler there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it really is. It's. The, I mean, there, there are lots and lots of thoughts that we both have here, and we'll sort of get to them in no particular order, as, as we always do. Uh, but one one thing that springs immediately to mind is there are so many assumptions that are ne- that cannot be questioned in the logic that uh, that de- defines her as having an unfair advantage. The first is that having more testosterone makes you run faster. That's an assumption. That yeah. that on its own is, is enough of an advantage. Yeah, I mean, if you were to compare her testosterone levels to yours... Yes. There's a question, you know, could you run faster than her? No. Even though you probably have more testosterone? <laughs> no. Uh, equally, does Usain Bolt have more testosterone than I do? Quite possibly. Possibly. But no one's saying that he should compete in a separate category that isn't for other men. Yeah. Uh, it it's entire the entirety of sport as a as an industry, as an infrastructure, is based on the fact that some bodies can do things that other bodies can't. Yeah. Right? That that is the whole logic of it. And it is only when female bodies supposedly bodies that are uh, are good enough to do things in a way that challenge our conceptions of gender categories, right? It is it is only because Casta Samania is so good at what she does that she is deemed to have an unfair advantage as a woman because yeah. she is not womanly enough. Uh, before we turn the machine on, we're talking about Michael Phelps. Uh, Michael Phelps has lots of physical advantages. Of course he does. He wouldn't have won as many gold medals as he has if he didn't have these physical advantages. Yeah. But when it comes to Michael Phelps as a white man, the media discourse is he's, he, he is lucky to have had a physiological advantage. And of course he's lucky to have, a, have had a physiological advantage. Yeah. And he's worked a lot on top of that to make best use of those physiological yeah. advantages. And we watch him win yeah. because we find it exciting yes. to watch someone with physiological advantages excel yeah. at physical prowess. Yes. Like we, he is watched and cheered on and supported yeah. and he is entertaining. Yeah. Precisely because he's yeah. using those advantages to do something that most of us could never do. Yes. That but all yes. of us yes. cannot do. Yes. And the 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 things that he can do, the advantages that he has that he can m- mobilize and monetize in order to in order to be successful are not deemed to be to amount to an unfair set of advantages. Yeah. Right. No one is. No one is saying that Michael Phelps is is cheating because he his body doesn't produce lactic acid, for example, or yeah. or, or because his or his metabolism is different, or you know, like no one is saying that you can't play basketball if you are six foot five or whatever. Yeah. Right. Which is you know you have an advantage if you are tall playing basketball. Yeah. Um, and. It is. It is own. So so. Even though we may not ever question it or seldom question, seldom expose it for what it is, the entire sports system 
for those of us who are fans, for those of us who watch sport and enjoy sport. It is based on marvelling at things that some bodies can do that other bodies cannot. It is inherently unfair. Yes. If we're using that as the the kind of basis for the discourse. Yes. If we wanted it to be fair, we would have, I don't know, selection by lottery, right? Where Britain would decide by lottery who represents Britain in the Olympics, for example. It would be entertaining in a different way. It would be entertaining in a very different way. But we don't do that because it's about using all the benefits that nature has given you and then adding a lot of work on top. And we should we, we don't want to underestimate, you know, Michael Phelps doesn't get to be Michael Phelps purely because of his physiological advantages. There has been a lot of work gone into that and that, that's perfectly fair enough. The problem is the physiological advantages for some bodies are deemed to be fair and above board. And the physiolo- physiological advantages for other bodies, like Astasamania, are not just deemed to be unfair, but deemed to be unfair in a way that has to be uh, pulled apart in, in a public ritual of humiliation. Yeah. Um, yeah, and they're very much tied to the intersection of gender and race. Yes. Um, a lot of the discourse around Castor Semenya that objectifies her, uh, that turns her into an animal, that dehumanizes her... Um, or that makes her seem like a freak of nature, or you know, all of that discourse is, is uh, colonial in origin. Um, it has it has a, a flavor of colonial tropes uh, that talk about specifically uh, black women bodies in Africa. Um, there's a there was a fear and a fascination and a sort of sexualized hypersexualization all at the same time of black women's bodies uh, during the colonial period that continues today. Um, we see we yeah. see these tropes used to describe uh, Serena Williams. Um, when I worked in a pub, uh, I worked in a pub during Wimbledon, and Serena Williams, a Serena Williams match was on, um, and uh, the one of the one of the regulars in the pub just kind of muttered under his breath um, a, a really derogatory statement about Serena Williams playing. Um, gross and vile and it was yeah. I was shocked and not surprised at the yeah. same time you yeah. know it's kind of um, so it's it's all kind of wrapped up in yeah. colonial discourses yeah. around black women's bodies and it uses a sort of pseudoscience of testosterone um, as a veneer of objectivity and, and scientific rationality to cover up what is a kind of base white fear of Castor Semenya's personhood. Yes. And what is lost in here is, or sometimes lost in here is, is sort of the, the because what Castor Semenya is able to do is connected intrinsically to the pseudoscience of testosterone, right? That the yeah. idea is that she is able to do what she can do only because yeah. she has, quote unquote, an abnormally high amount of testosterone in her body. What is lost is any idea of either skill or labor. Yeah. Right. That that, and and what's ironic in in that, uh, erasure of skill and labor is that it is precisely because of skill skill and labor that Semania is being targeted in the first place. Yeah. Right. If everything else about Casta Semania was exactly the same, as it is now, apart from the fact if she wasn't winning anything. Yeah. No one would care. 
Yeah. No one would care what her gender identity was. No one would care which category she took part in. No one would care. It is only because she's winning and trouncing all of her opposition. Because she is good. Because she's able to run faster than others. That is her job. That is her labor. She is particularly good at her job. Yeah. Uh, that she has become too good. Yeah. In a sense, it's sort of a, it's a, it's a double-edged sword where by being too good and clearly being the best, yes. she's abnormal. Yes. And for certain other bodies, being abnormal just means that you are the best. Yes. But if you are not a kind of high-performing man, and I mean that in the the kind of gendered way, as opposed to just a sort of biological sex way, Um, you know, a sort of hyper-masculine athlete competing with men, then you are subject to far more scrutiny of this type. Yeah. Because your advantage is problematic yeah but this is there's something underlying so there's there's all these debates right and there's they're very circular debates around well if 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 she's so good she shouldn't compete with everyone else because it means that it's you know it's just not fair for everyone else and she just keeps winning and you need to have a starting point that's fair but then when we talk about someone like Usain Bolt or Michael Phelps it's they have this advantage and that's something to be celebrated and so it's not fair for that, you know, these kinds of things. And you go round and round and round and a lot of the kind of, the the sort of, the most vocal critics of Castro's Mini and people who are in support of her not running or having to be medicated in order to run are her competitors. Yes. Um, People who identify as women um, who biologically are considered by the medical establishment to be unambiguously, unambiguously women, yeah. biologically women, yeah. um, who don't want to run against her yeah. because they feel that it's unfair, which I find really fascinating yeah. um, because it is a it's sort of, it's, it's the argument that is made often to keep women's sports available, to yeah. keep women's sports a thing, yeah. um, to make a competitive arena for women to compete. Because if you think about, you know, certain types of sports and the kind of, if we think physically, the sort of physical differences across population level or kind of a population level, you know, basketball, for example, women play with different sized basketballs. Um, And tennis as well. Tennis as well. So you have, there are certain things that take into account kind yeah. of across the population yeah. physiological differences on average yeah. um, it, it's the sort of argument that women should be able to play a sport that is that kind of facilitates them you know competing yeah um, but then at the same time you think but somebody like Castro Semenya or it, what's becoming a more interesting conversation about trans athletes as well or intersex athletes or um non-binary athletes what it do they compete which which type of category do you use in order to determine who they compete 
yeah. with. Um, yeah. it, you know, it starts to really make you think about athletics and sports in general. And you think about the types of activities that you do when you play the sport. Most of them were designed for men. Yeah. So you think about um, a sport like cricket, um, where you swing a really heavy bat and hit a really heavy ball. Yeah. And the further it goes, the better. As opposed to a sport like football, yeah. where women actually really excel at a sport yeah. like football. Yeah. Because a lot of it is about uh, certain techniques that yeah. women are quite good at. Rock climbing. Yeah. Women are quite good at, yeah. at rock climbing yeah. because certain aspects yeah. are suited to yeah. a lot of kind of activities yeah. that women's bodies do quite well. Yeah. Flexibility. Yeah. Um, ballet yeah. and dance. You yeah. know, they a lot of it is around kind of the activities that we value, yeah. the types of, of performance of skill that yeah. we think of as being exceptional. Yeah. Those are the things that get kind of highlighted or yeah. set aside for, for kind of competition purposes. Yeah. And sports are quite, they're, they're quite specific around certain types of men's bodies. I mean, that's interesting. I mean, while you were, while you were talking about cricket, I was thinking, you know, as a, as a lifelong cricket fan, if you think of a figure like the, the ex-Indian cricketer Sachin Tendulkar, mm. When he first started playing international cricket, he was a 17-year-old boy, five foot three, four, something like that. If you see photos of him from the time, he's a very, very slender, tiny person. If he was able to play, quote-unquote, men's cricket, then there's no reason why men's cricket needs to be separate from women's cricket. Yeah. In terms of sort of, you know, conventional male yeah. bodies and conventional female bodies. I'm doing skateboards around all of these, obviously. Um, but his body was always unambiguously male. Yeah. And therefore he belonged. Whatever the physical, actual physical features of his specific body is. Yeah. Um, and therefore it wasn't it didn't ever challenge the the hegemony of the the gender binary. Yeah, cricket I mean we could talk a lot about the different types of cricket and different yeah. kind of strategies for playing cricket and yeah. different like schools of cricket yeah. playing. Yeah. Um baseball well I mean there's there's something else interesting as well that we didn't talk about before that I think mm. is really relevant and that's the debate about doping. Yeah. Um if if the point of sports is to excel. Yeah. And if the point is to manipulate your body yeah. to such an extent that it can do yes. you know, superhuman things, where does doping fit in? And, yeah. and it's only quite recently that we've started to think of doping as being bad. Yeah. But what is what makes manipulating hormones in your body different? Yeah. From, uh, different from say manipulating your diet. Yes, special diet, protein shakes. You know, the there doesn't seem to be an objective difference between shaping and molding your body through what you eat versus injecting your body. Yeah. With things to shape and mold it. Yeah. 
for example. And if everyone is doping, yeah, it's a it. There's a really interesting kind of medical expertise going on yeah. about who can who can devise yeah. the best exactly. drugs. Yeah, yeah. And in competition, that's you know why we don't value that is quite interesting and very recent. Yeah, that it's it's a very recent debate around doping that wasn't a thing in the early 20th yeah. century. In the same way, you, you know, the the kind of expertise that goes into designing equipment that yeah. allows you to run faster, you know, designing shoes or clothes that allow you to run faster, that's seen as fair game. Yeah. Uh, Although, interestingly, yeah. all the swimming records that are held yeah. are held from the brief period of time yeah. where the Olympics and the international swimming competitions yeah. allowed swimmers to wear a certain type of water-resistant yeah. uh, swimsuit. Those suits have now been banned yeah. and people yeah. aren't breaking records yeah. anymore. Yeah. But I guess the point is that, like many things we talk about when we talk about when we on on our podcast, the categories of fairness and unfairness, the the rules that everyone is supposed to follow in sport are not as naturally self evident yeah. as they would they might appear. Yeah. And what is deemed to give an unfair advantage is is not not obvious and, and self-evident either. Yeah. Um, before we turn the machine on, you were talking about Oscar Pistorius. Yeah. Um, and when when Pistorius was still performing as an athlete, uh, as a Paralympian athlete, uh, for those of you who don't know, Pistorius is a double amputee. And uh, when he was running, he, he used to run on, on blades. Uh, and he was very good at what he did. He was much faster than many of the other than than, than his competitors in, in the Paralympics, and there was he, he applied to and was allowed to run in the quote unquote normal races, uh, uh, and there was a similar conversation to Castasamania about whether his blades gave him an unfair advantage. Mm-hmm. Turns out it, they didn't, and he wasn't he didn't, wasn't good enough to win. Except, of course, we only know that they didn't give him an advantage because he wasn't good enough to win. Yeah. He might not have been good enough to win even though they gave him an unfair advantage. Yeah. That is that is at least theoretically possible. It just nobody cared because he wasn't winning. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, the, the, the conclusion that we draw is that they didn't give him an unfair advantage, which is logically unsound. Yeah. It is perfectly possible that the blades did give him an unfair advantage, insofar as any advantage can be unfair, but that he just still wasn't good enough. Yeah. Yeah. And the other, you know, and we could also, you know, talk about disability and and um, ability and and talk about how the race may not ever be able to kind of facilitate people with different abilities you know there's many different stories to be told yeah about oscar pistorius but yes. the one that has been chosen is about kind of fairness that it, yes. it was perfectly fair and he just didn't win yeah i think what the argument that we'll eventually make and that we're coming to yeah. is that the discourse yeah on the face of it seems to be about fairness, equality, beginning from the same point yeah. and having a sort of fair competition of like 
of bodies that are con- that are deemed like for like. Yes. And that we need to regulate that. Yes. But actually, what all of this what all of this is for is manipulating the sport itself yeah. and creating athletes' bodies as commodities to be consumed as part of a performance or an entertain piece of entertainment, which yes. is the, the the spectator sport. Yeah. And all of this is about creating Castor Semenya as a competitor that can be commodified for performance and then consumed by the people who want to watch her race. And there's a fear among a lot of people who do watch her race or people who do participate in that performance as well yeah. that she isn't a she isn't a commodity to be consumed. Yeah. That we need to improve her body is commodity for yeah. consumption. That yeah. the the sport that she's doing isn't mm-hmm. interesting to watch. Yeah. It's no longer fun for people to watch women race when there is this one particular person yes. who does too good. Yeah. And that is creating the sport essentially for consumption purposes. Yes. And that is where your kind of point about her doing her labor yeah. hits comes up against or comes into tension with her labor as a commodity. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, we, I mean, I guess it, it, we are sort of have been so far talking about labor and skill as if they're the same thing, and of course they're not. Yeah. Because uh, one of the many binaries or, or divisions that can't be, can't be disentangled is to what extent is Castasamania good because she is skilled and to what extent is she good because she's put in the hours of practice in terms of labor. And of course, they, they come to the same thing. Uh, she is good because she's good and she's good because she's worked hard. Yeah. Uh, the problem is that the, the commodification of her body and commodification of athletes' bodies in general imply that athletes have to be sort of this good and no further or good in particular ways uh, that are not deemed to hamper the uh, enjoyment of the, the spectator. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of connections to be made with yeah. other other sports and other yeah. athletes. Women's sports, I think, come in for a unique and distinctive type of commodification. Um, there's obviously a sexualization of, yeah. of women athletes' bodies. Um, but there's also a sort of reinforcement of the limits of women's bodies and women's bodies can never be as good as men's bodies. So this is one of the arguments that's made by, uh, in, in tennis made by some of the male athletes in tennis that women shouldn't get paid as much because they're not as good because they, at a certain point, they cannot beat men in a match. And they can't do their bodies can't do what men what men tennis players can do and therefore yeah. their labor isn't worth as much and, and we have a, a clear conflation of skill and labor here right that yeah. that women's women according to this argument women should be paid less because they are less skilled as opposed to the amount of work they're putting in yeah and of course there is also an argument sometimes made to defend unequal pay based on labor in tennis particularly because men's games are longer yeah 
Uh, and that argument is often made that because men's games are longer, therefore men should be paid more. Um, but of, that is a circular argument as well because it, the men, because men's games are longer because women are deemed to not be able to play for five sets. Yeah. Um, other sports. But also, but like Usain Bolt, he runs a very short race. Yeah. <laughs> but but he gets yeah. paid a lot because yes. but his race isn't as long. No. But okay, it's a really strange. It's a, it, and as you say, the categories themselves that we use yeah. to identify what's good, what's the best, what is demonstrating the most skill versus what's demonstrating the most yeah. labor are so, so fluid yeah. and mutatable and yeah. totally, and, and they're just manipulated essentially. Yeah. And they're manipulated, yeah. I think, for this purpose of making sports as interesting and exciting as possible for the people who consume them. And in that process, the bodies of the athletes themselves get commodified. Is there, a, you, you mentioned theater in passing when we were talking about Butler. Is there, mm. a, is there a connection between sport and theater here? How was, oh, how yeah. was theatrical labor seen? Well, one of the interesting, I think what the, the art form that sits in between is yeah. dance. Yeah. Um, and dance is very fascinating subject to to similar types of of racial coding um and the performance of certain types of dance as being more difficult versus more artistic versus more valid and legitimate street dance for example you know versus ballet and those kinds of things um but theater as well and i think probably more in in more lucrative forms of of theater performance that aren't theater yeah. anymore that's film and television yeah because they are more easily commodified and they're yeah. worth more um so actors who perform in those art forms yeah. are worth more money their yeah. bodies and their acting labor is worth more yeah um i think it's really interesting we could we could draw connections to me too yeah and women's bodies and we yeah. could draw connections as well to some of the debates around uh body positivity yeah. that we've talked about um women performers are regulated to such an extent yeah um their performances but also their the bodies themselves i mean they come under scrutiny in so many different types of ways that is quite similar um theater i think is actually really interesting and it's something that i've chatted a little bit to um a friend of the pod gordon houston actually recently about because when you go and audition for conservatory or when you're starting out as an actor, one of the things that you need to demonstrate is your ability to be directable yeah. and your ability to say yes. And this creates such a power dynamic yeah. that is, I find so exploitative. It's the, the primary reason why yeah. I didn't go into theater yeah. because the power dynamic is so violent in yeah. the audition room yeah. where you essentially can be asked to do anything. Yeah. To the point where like rape happens, right? Yeah, like yeah, that's what yeah, Me Too is about. Yeah. The casting couch. Yeah, yeah. But it's not just that type of violation which is technically yeah. illegal. It's other forms of violation. Um, Gordon and I had a long conversation about what's called animal work, which is yeah. very popular here in the UK. Yeah. Where as part of your audition, you will spend a significant period of time being an animal. Yeah. Which 
I just find really humiliating. And the purpose of it essentially is to see how how far you are willing to go to behave like an animal for so long and create a sort of animal character. And actors defend this to their dying breath. Actors will defend this activity to kingdom come as a sort of their ability to take on any kind of character, their ability to to do anything with their bodies, their ability to um, to go as far as necessary to create a character. And I will defend my position and say, I don't need to be a squirrel for six hours yeah. in order to be Juliet on stage. Yeah. But I, yeah. You know, what, what it is ultimately is the power given to the institution itself that's granting a place at conservatory or a place in the company or a place in the show. Yeah. And that power is part of the system it's yeah. built in yeah and it's part of the performance and it's quite similar actually yeah. and, and in the in the final instance of course it's it's both the the hegemonic power of uh of recognition uh you know the power that that recognizes you as an actor uh but it's also the financial power of of payment right it, it is you know the the same the system that demands you be a squirrel for six hours is the system that can pay you to be an actor. Yeah. And if it doesn't pay you, then you're not an actor. Yeah. Uh, the system that demands that Castasamania be womanly in a particular way uh, is the system that can either allow her to to be an athlete, pay her to be an athlete, or not. Yeah. Uh, and it's that the the combination of denying her her humanity and denying her her labor to to be a woman to be an athlete to be a human being yeah to be continued to be continued uh, we will carry on this discussion next week when we talk uh, more specifically about race uh, and and uh, religion but we'll also carry on similar issues of of gender sexuality and class and labor um hope that was of interest let us know thanks for listening thanks for listening uh if you get the chance then uh give us a rate or review on itunes uh it, it always helps and catch you next week bye bye we hope you enjoyed this episode i have been hannah fitzpatrick and i have been anindia richardry you can contact me on twitter at dr h fitz and me at dr anindia r Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you.